welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I have some very interesting interviews to share with you over the next few weeks. But before we get to the question and answer period and then the interview, let's thank our sponsor, Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping you with everything you need to sew for your boat, from bimini's and boat covers to upholstery work and even sewing your own sails. Sailrite is your one-stop shop for fabric, sail and canvas kits, tools, hardware and sewing supplies. Sailrite is also the maker of the patented Ultrafeed sewing machine, a portable heavy-duty machine that can handle all the sewing jobs for your boat and more. A passionate crew of DIYers, Sailrite produces high-quality, free how-to videos to empower their customers to turn their sewing dreams into a reality. Well, I've got interviews with Jackson Cranfield and Xanthi. Four of them, in fact. They're in the can, the first one I'm going to be releasing today. But before we get to that, let me answer a couple questions that came in. Get ready for today's mailbag. I like getting emails from my friends out there, so if you have any thoughts comments, suggestions, or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Now for today's emails. All right, this one's an easy one. This is from Jeff Cook of Dallas, Texas. Jeff wrote, I found your podcast a few weeks ago and I'm really enjoying it. Thanks for all the hard work. I've been in boats and on the water most of my life, but I only began sailing in 2016. Since that time, I've earned certifications in ASA 101, 103, 104, and 105. At present, I'm currently studying for the 107 Celestial Certification and loving it. I plan to complete the 106 this fall or next spring. My wife, some friends, and I are sailing in Greece June 1st to 7th, and we'll be sailing out of Marina Zia. It will be my first bareboat charter, although I'm hiring a captain. So I'm not sure that it's technically a bareboat. Nevertheless, we will be going where the weather takes us and the wind takes us. It's also my first trip to the Med, so a captain with a neophyte crew in unknown waters seems like more of a prudent thing to do. <laughs> it's prudent, but it's not as adventurous as uh, jumping in with both feet. But anyway, that's an editorial comment. He goes on to say, I do have a question that I've not found the answer to online or heard in your podcast. We'll be spending a few days in Santorini before we sail. And I'm curious if you know of any good sail shops on Santorini or in around Zia. I'd love to practice my new celestial skills while on the water, but have yet to purchase a high-quality sextant. As such, I'm considering buying one in Greece because of the exchange rates. Curious if you have any suggestions. Thanks again for putting out such a compelling. Thanks again for putting out such compelling content. I'm sure I'll become a patron, but I've never been on that site yet. Cheers and fair winds, Jeff Cook, Dallas, Texas. Uh, Jeff, no, I bought my sextant online. 
years ago. I got it as a Christmas gift one one year, and it was actually a Chinese knockoff of the uh, the the Weems and Plath sextant. And it's it's a very high quality sextant. I have no complaints about that sextant. But you're not going to find, at least I don't think you're going to find, an instrument of that caliber uh, on Santorini. You're going to find tourist trinket trash on Santorini more than anything else. <laughs> and um, and really, ah, there's only a few shops that I've ever been to that actually have sextants for sale. And one was in San Pedro uh, in California. And one was a very specialized sailing shop. Sextants are highly expensive and very rarely asked for in shops. So most likely you're going to end up buying your sextant online like I did. So that's the best I can do for you on that. If anybody else has any comments, uh, you know, write me a note and I'll share it with Jeff. The next email is from Stefan. Stefan wrote, Hi, I've started to listen to your podcast, but I've not yet found all the details I need. I'm interested in buying what looks like a pretty good boat in Croatia. No VAT paid, as far as I know. I'm Canadian and would like to keep it there as a cottage to go a couple months a year. In a nutshell, do you have any facts, frequently asked questions that cover these? I know it's a lot to ask. On going costs, buying process, etc. Anywhere you can point me would be great. Thanks. Uh, no, I think I wrote you back that I don't do any facts. I'm not a writer. If somebody wants to write a fact, I'd post it on the website. But I, I tell you what really is the drag for me to actually get out podcasts is to write the show notes and get those ready. I am not a writer. I don't enjoy writing. That's why this is a podcast. I've covered what the going costs on marinas are in Croatia, at least where I'm at, and my experiences of costs. As far as, and I see this all the time, I see people that buy a boat, they leave it in a marina, and they go down and use it like a, a summer home. And to me, that's just not what a boat should be. A boat is meant to go out there and go sailing, drop an anchor in different coves and harbors and the idea of just going over and sitting on a boat in a marina just does not do anything for me, but it may for you, and best of luck. Now, you may want to listen to this interview because Jackson talks about his procedure for buying a boat in Croatia. So, And I have a special podcast, which I don't share here on the website, which is available to my patrons that, uh, that choose to commit to... Uh, Donated $10 per month. That's one that, that Jack Andrews goes over in detail how he bought his boat in Croatia. But I didn't put that out here. I want that to be a bonus episode to those patrons that, uh, that choose to support the podcast. So if you want to do that, feel free. I'll send it to you. All right. Now, this is going to be the last one I'm going to do, even though I have a couple more questions, because this one's going to take a little time. This one is from Richard Lysett. And he said, Franz, I hope you're well. Episode 179, 23 minutes in, you're talking about retrieving your anchor when it's been crossed. I'm sorry, I can't work out what you're describing. I'm thinking another explanation and diagram might perhaps be a good idea. Just couldn't get it. Just couldn't get my head around it. Regards, Richard. Well, Richard, this is a podcast, so I'm going to have to try to paint with words what you might want to see in a video. In fact, I bet if you Google or go onto YouTube and um, look for a video on crossed anchors, how to untangle them, 
you probably could find one. But I'm going to describe the procedure that I learned by the hard way, by trial and error. I never had any uh, education prior to it actually occurring to me the first time. I'm getting over a cold, so my voice is not particularly good, and I end up coughing a little bit while I'm talking here. I try to cut that out so you don't listen to it. But anyway, let me set the stage for, for how I learned. All right, so I had sailed through the Dardanelles and up into the Sea of Marmara. And I had, actually I sailed up through it by myself, and I was going to be picking my crew up at the ferry port at Bandirma Exansi which is directly across from Istanbul. So if you went on into Istanbul and you caught a ferry directly across the Sea of Marmara, that's where the ferry ends up, is over at that little port on the other side. So I'd sailed around, and I had actually tied up at a little town called, and i got to find it here. I guess I better open up Google Maps because Google Earth is not showing it to me. All right, the name of the town is Erdek, E-R-D-E-K. So I pulled into this little place by myself. It was a very crowded little anchorage, but I was able to back in right into the very end of the mole. I dropped my anchor. I was by myself. went to bed. It was, it was fairly late in the evening when I got there. And in the morning, I decided I didn't really like this port. I wanted to go up to another port a little farther to the north and ended up going up to another port called... Oh, let's see if I can think the name of it. Let's see if I can find the name of it. Ah, here it is. Ilhankoy. I-L-H-A-N-K-O-Y. Because that offered a lot better protection, and I actually could side tie up there. And that's where I ended up going up the next day. But when I got up that morning, tried to pull up my anchor, lo and behold, somebody had crossed their anchor chain across my chain. And fortunately for me, it was dead calm weather. And so I pull up my anchor and as the anchor gets to the uh, breaks the water I can see that I'm hooked on another chain sat there and looked at it for a while looked at it for a while tried to figure out what to do of course I think at that point in time I had already let loose on my um, my stern line so I was sort of being held only by this anchor that my flukes were snagged under not anchor the anchor chain that my flukes were snagged under so I sat there and sat there and thought and thought and thought, and I thought, well, okay, you know, you do what everybody does. Everybody says, okay, I'll grab it with the boat hook and get it off. Well, <laughs> that does not work. So if you try to grab the anchor that you're snagged onto or the anchor chain that you're snagged onto with a boat hook, all right, you might be able to get it off your flukes, but now how are you going to get it off the boat hook? Or you're going to drop your boat hook and lose your boat hook. So, so that's not a particularly good idea. So I thought about it for a while, and I've got two cleats up at the bow of the boat, and of course I have a bowsprit that goes out the front of my boat, but where the anchor chain was hooked by the flukes of my CQR anchor, it was right at the bow of the boat. And and normally, if you have two people, it's a lot easier, but I was by myself. So what I did was I got a, a line, just any line will do. It needs to be around oh, 10, 15 feet long. Long enough that you can cleat it on one side of the bow of the boat. So I have two, two bits on my boat. I mean, I have a bit on, uh, that I can tie lines onto. So I uh, tied one end of the line 
on a bit and ran it out through my hose pipe. And then down underneath the chain that I was hooked onto. All right. So you've ran this line from a place where you've tied it onto the boat, a cleat where it's tied on the boat, out around the chain. And now you need to bring it back up, back to your boat, snug it tight. And in, in my case, I just wrapped it around the bits a few times. And if you had a, a regular cleat, you just put a regular cleat on there, a cleat knot on there. And then once that's done, now, now I'm being held in place just by this anchor. Now I lower my windlass, so I lower my anchor. Now I've lowered the anchor, and that chain is still being held to the boat, but now it's no longer hooked in the anchor. The anchor is free, and at that point in time, you just take your boat hook down, and you push your anchor flukes array away from the chain, and then retrieve your anchor, and you're still being held by the anchor chain that you've that's crossed you. And uh, then all you have to do at that point in time is release one end of the line and it will fall free. And then you just retrieve your line out the other side. So that's all there is to it. Now that's where there's just one anchor chain across. If you've got two or three, then it becomes more complicated, but it's just a, uh, a variation on the theme, so to speak. So I hope I've been able to describe how you unfoul a crossed anchor chain. Okay. That's all for questions and answers this week. I've got a few more we'll go over next week, but my voice is not holding out very well. So let's get on to the interview. That's it for today's emails. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, or comments or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. If you want to do me a big favor, you could become a Patreon of the podcast. I have a few listeners out there that are already patrons, and I'm looking for more. If you have some spare change that you could throw my way once in a while, please sign up at patreon.com backslash medsailor. And one more thing, if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast directory. All right, let's get on to today's episode. I wanted to thank a couple people who wrote reviews in iTunes for the podcast. The first one is from Craig. Craig wrote, Franz does a great job with having interviews with very informative guests that provide a wealth of information for anyone new to sailing like myself, and I would suspect also for experienced sailors as well keep it going. Thanks, Craig. I really appreciate that. And the next one was from New Portuguese. And he wrote, as someone who has resettled in Portugal specifically to achieve a goal of sailing in the med, Franz's podcast is pure gold. What an amazing source of pinpoint information. Franz also talks with folks from all walks of the cruising world, which rounds out the site nicely. As a future boat buyer, I would love to hear more about what exactly is necessary in a med cruiser. Does it need to be blue water? What use vessels to consider? Minimums for safe cruising in all four seasons. I'm going to try to answer that in new Portuguese. Um, we've talked about boats in the Mediterranean before. 
You can get away with um, coastal cruisers, I think, in the med, as long as you watch the weather fairly closely. I don't think you're going to find any boat that you want to sail in the med for four seasons. The winters can become very, very violent in the Mediterranean, and I don't know of any sailors that want to be out there in uh, in the middle of, of that misery that the med can be in the winter. Sorry about that. Anyway, that's uh, I don't uh, we will we've talked about boats in other podcasts. Just listen to some of the podcasts where we talk about them. <laughs> I don't know which ones they are, but thank you for writing the review. I really appreciate it. All right, let's get on to my interview with Jackson Crandall and Xanthi. This is the first of so far four interviews that I've recorded, and I'll be doing more because we haven't even <laughs> got to where he's at right now. Well, I'm on the uh, I'm, I'm on Skype with Jackson Crandall and Xanthi. Xanthi, are you guys married or not? Are you just living in sin? No, not not yet. <laughs> That's hope. <laughs> All right. Xanthi Hayes. Okay, Xanthi Hayes. And uh, originally, uh, Jackson wrote me a letter back. I think it was in June of last year, or maybe a little before. Yeah, it was that. probably a while ago now. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you said you were up in Pula, Croatia, and that you were buying a boat, sailing it down the coast, and seeing if we might meet up sometime this summer, and we did. We were able to catch up and meet in uh, near Ryson in Montenegro, and we had a great dinner that night. And uh, also, We sure did. Yeah, we had a great dinner, and we went on a friend's boat. His name was... Okay. I'm, Manuel Man- on SV, SV Independence at Sea. Right, Manuel. And I saw him actually a little later on the summer. I never met him. I, I just saw him oh, sailing really? by. I saw him sailing by oh. north of north of Corchula. He was heading up towards Havar. But I kept yelling yeah. at him and blowing my horn, but somebody oh. they were they were ignoring me and they just sailed on by. <laughs> Having too much fun sailing. <laughs> right. Well, okay, you guys are living the dream. This is going to be a great interview because uh, you are doing what a lot of people wish they could do. And uh, and let's just go through your story. You started listening Absolutely. to the, you you started yeah. listening to the podcast a, a while back, but you've been a sailor most of your life, right? Both of you. Yeah, you so guys can each in, pipe in and talk individually. Okay. Um, yeah, so I've been sailing for the better part of almost 20 years now uh, in Sydney, Australia. Um, all racing for me, uh, a lot of skiff racing, dinghy racing, and then as I got a bit older, quite a bit of yacht racing as well. Um, and I was lucky enough to do a little bit of travel and do some travel around the world for the racing. Um, and I started thinking, like, you know, how could we... It'd be a really nice way to actually travel the world by sail and um, and see some pretty unique places. And it was always just a pipe dream for me. Um, I I thought at the time that it would be something that I'd do much later in life. Um, I'm only 27 now, and Xanthi's just turned 32. And um, yeah, look, when I when I met Xanthi three years ago, um, I was telling her. Four years ago, sorry. Um, I was telling her about this dream uh, that I had that was, you know, one day I'd love to be able to sail around the world with hopefully a wife and some kids and explore places that we've never been before. And uh, Xanthi was 
very optimistic and completely on board with it and said, that sounds great, but... How about now? How about now? <laughs> good um, for you, Zan. And I... Yeah, good for us. Yeah. And I've never sailed before in my life, so Jackson's taught me everything I know. Um, and it's quite funny because he's from a racing background. We've bumped into a lot of cruisers our age along the way, and um, they're definitely a lot more cruisy than us <laughs> when, when you get chatting. Um, he's still got that race mindset, and everything has to be done immediately, and the, you know the sails have to go up in point not of a, two of a second. So it's quite funny to share notes. Um, but yeah, so I guess when we actually started that little idea, that little spark of an idea. Um, that was when I started researching how to do it. And I actually started with podcasts. We were both listening to podcasts and then yeah. coming home from work after you know, listening to them on the commute and then coming home from work going, oh, I listened to a podcast and it said this. And then we'd, you know, we'd just share ideas. And, uh, and for me, it was about trying to find information that, I'd never heard, like, I just didn't know about um, in terms of, is this too loud for you, Franz? No, it's perfect. Shoot. Okay, oh. okay. Sorry, there was just a bit of a few people walking through the lobby. Um, but, yeah, we, you know, that was when I started with the podcast and started really researching and finding out the, the cruising way and, you know, all the things I really hadn't done before of, like, you know, getting to tight, tight anchorages and dealing with bad storms when you're out at sea and, you know, you're not just out there for a few hours of racing. Um, and, yeah, it was podcasts like yours that really helped a lot. And got us really excited as yeah, well. Yeah, got us really excited about all the amazing places. Um, you know, I followed all of your med adventures each year and the cool places you're going, especially that you spent quite a bit of time up there in Croatia and whatnot, which, you know, was, was where we were looking for the boat. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, that's... That's the genesis of the story. Uh, okay, so so now I gotta ask you, you you are not uh, Patreon, but at the uh, ten dollar level, I have a special secret podcast where Jack Andrews talks right. about buying a uh, buying a boat in Croatia, and yeah, uh, and but you figured it out without actually paying me for that podcast. So where did you find the? <laughs> We've done a lot of research. All right. I mean, this 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 baby is three and a half years in the making, really. So, um, yeah, if, if we knew that you had Patreon, we would have jumped straight on board because that's a great tool. Yeah, it's um, secret sure. podcasts. But uh, yeah, we we've done a lot of research, and we were lucky enough to one of Jackson's friends, um, Rod Waterhouse. He's a boat broker back in Australia. And he was the one who uh, suggested that we looked in Croatia or Greece. Yeah, he was the one that um, gave us the plan. So I'd really suggest to anyone out there who is thinking about the same thing, it's about surrounding yourself with knowledgeable people, really. Um, and he was the one that sort of gave us the, the framework of a plan of buying a boat in Europe, which, as you can imagine, as Australians, that was a pretty far cry from home um, made it more of an adventure to be making our way over there and buying a boat but yeah he was the one that sort of gave us the framework of how you'd get home and how you'd actually purchase a boat over there and where to look um and i mean all our research was all online and i must have contacted 
500 ads, I'd say. Um, yeah. Looking for boats. And yeah, ended up whittling that down to a few. And having not ever lived on a boat before, uh, we didn't really know what we wanted in a boat. And it wasn't always Croatia as well, was it? We we'd kind of had whittled it down to Croatia. We, we were looking in Greece, Croatia, and as far um, west as Spain, actually, Turkey. and Italy as well, to see good, where the best place was. Croatia seemed to have the um, the best selection, really, and it was easy. It looked easier to travel throughout Croatia, and it was. We ended up renting a car for what, six euros a day or something crazy like yeah. that in the off season, and um, yeah, we, we don't regret choosing Croatia at all. Yeah, we um we thought it was a good spot because we could see a lot of boats in a small amount of time. Um, you know, when we're looking at boats in Greece, it was often going to be two days in between looking at boats just to get from island island to island and that was expensive um, and time consuming so yeah look we ended up in Croatia Uh, we went over there for two weeks originally just to look at boats and you know we didn't have pressure on ourselves to buy one and we just kind of figured if the right boat was there then it'd come to us and we'd go from there. So let me ask you did you work with a broker or did you just go on to Yacht World and, and look online for boats? Um, yeah, so I went online and contacted basically all the brokers. I mean, you end up, in the end, you always end up getting to a broker somehow. Um, We've been warned against a couple, so we were very cautious. We didn't rule anyone out, though. We, we still spoke to them. Um, I mean, you'll see for yourself, if you're shopping for a boat in Croatia, there someone's actually gone to the trouble of making their own hate website against one broker. <laughs> yeah. There's we, one, there's one, I, is there one yeah. broker in particular you're talking about? Yeah, there, there is a... What called? I forget. Uh, I think it was called Selimar. Selimar, that's the There one, was a pretty yeah. bad... Uh, someone yeah. had had a pretty bad experience with them and they yeah. had pretty bad reviews. But, I mean, I also met other people that had seemed to have good reviews. Yeah, as well. it becomes apparent very quickly. I mean, you, you can use your gut instinct and as well just the way they interact with you. We got really lucky with the guy that we found, Sasha from um, Munitor. And um, there was another lady called Nina from um, Bach Yachting. She was amazing. So you can tell pretty quickly. All right. So Nina from Bath Yachting, B-A-T-H? Oh, Bach as in the composer, B-A-C-H. Okay. And what was the other one? Uh, Sasha from Munitor. From M-U-N-I-T-O-R. All right, because I've got a friend that's actually going over there this summer, and he's going to be looking for that. So it's always good to get uh, uh, referrals well, from would, people. So. Yeah, absolutely. I would start with Nina um, because she was in Split, um, which is a bit more central to where you're flying in. Uh-huh. We ended up in Pula, so, I mean, you're pretty far north at that point. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, definitely good people to start with. They bent over backwards for us. They were so helpful, and that's when we knew that we could trust them when they're that willing to help out. Now, had you met the, Now, had you yeah. had a conversation with them initially on the Internet, or was it showing up and talking to them in person? Yeah, so, look, over about a six-month period, I'd say, I would have sent – I would have contacted or made inquiries on probably four to 500 boats, I'd say. Out of that 400 boats, I would have got 
possibly 100 replies. And out of those 100 replies, I would have actually got maybe 25 boats that were actually as advertised and were actually available. A lot of the problems we had were... We got led up the garden path by a couple of brokers. Yeah, like a lot of brokers, you know, they say that the yacht's available and you go down days of talking to them about it and then they come at the end and say, oh, it's not available until after the charter season. Or, yeah, or it, or it doesn't exist. Or it doesn't exist. And once, but the worst experience we had, I, can't, I think it was with Selimar, they'd sent us to see a boat and um, we got there and it was not the boat that we went to see. Um, it was way out of our price range. And then we spoke to the broker afterwards and said, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's similar to the one you wanted to look at. That boat, um, they've gone sailing for a few days, so you can't see it. And we wish that they told us that because it was a complete waste of a day. We went so far to go and see it. Yeah. I but... felt badly for the guy whose boat it was as well because he'd obviously come out to show us around and thought we were going to buy it. So, but just going back a step there, I mean, after we contacted a bunch of these brokers and I kind of got the list down to 15 possible options and that was all via email. Um, we weren't calling any of them. We then, you know, booked appointments with them uh, and headed over to Croatia to see them in person. Um, and, yeah, that was when we then started to see the boats and make the arrangements to see the brokers and whatnot. And so this was in uh, May of uh, 2018 then? Uh, April. April, yeah. April. It's your birthday, okay. wasn't it? Okay. Yeah, mid-April. Which at the time, was a, it wasn't the best time to be buying a boat. Um, we wish we'd gone a couple of months earlier. Oh, oh yeah. You've got to be there in like October, really. Yeah. October um, to January seemed to be the sweet spot. We just got really lucky that we actually found a boat during that time, apparently. So a lot of the boats, France, have been like they're, they're getting put back up for charter and everyone's preparing them for the season and they've paid, you know, their marina fees for the next year and whatnot. So you're better off trying to pick up a boat in, say, October, November, after the season's done and all the, all the owners are deciding whether they're going to put the boat up again for another season yeah. or get rid of it. Nina actually suggested that we went back home to Australia and gave up the search because she said it was such a bad time of year to go. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that, that the, the, the end of the charter season is when they want to sell, sell the boats. And then, but then you've got the carrying costs of, of paying for a marina until you get on the boat the next, next spring. So that's that's 100% yeah. right. Well, we were really clever when we we negotiated marina fees into the price. So we had a month free in the marina to do all our boat work. So I think be really cheeky with the negotiation. Okay, okay. Well, talk talk to us about what type of boat you bought and and what repairs you needed to do and how old the boat is. Just just go into details about sure. your boat. So, as I said, like, we didn't really know what kind of boat we wanted. Um, and we looked at boats from 36 foot up to 48 foot. Um, all, look, they were all basically production boats, um, your standard Benito's Bavarias, whatnot. Um, and we ended up with a 2005 Elan Impression, which is a... Uh, 384. What did I say? Elan Impression 384, so yeah. she's 38 foot. So she's 38 foot. 
um, 2005 model. She has lived a life as a charter boat. Um, it was quite interesting actually going around to a lot of the different charter companies because there was a lot of difference in quality. You could see how some people were looking after their boats and some people weren't. Um, so we were quite quite happy with the quality boat we got. She was in really good condition for a 13-year-old boat. Well, she had a new engine. I think that was the key because all these charter boats that we went to go and see, their engines have been ragged. They had tens of thousands of engine hours sometimes. Yeah. So it was good to find a boat that only had um, about a thousand engine hours on it. Yeah. Um, so that was a real positive, uh, having a new engine. Um, but to be honest with you, it was a really standard boat. It didn't have too many extras. Um, and the key for us was getting a really good surveyor. Um, again, it was someone that I'd contacted online and I think I actually got a referral of one of the yachting forums. Um, and he basically found, I would, him, or not found, but saved us probably $10,000 yeah, worth was, of repairs. He was pretty hard on the owner. He, he went in hard with um, trying to get outcomes for us. So we were really happy with that. Yeah, so before, look, as part of the purchase, uh, they had to replace the engine mounts, uh, realign the engine, replace the rear shaft seal, uh, exhaust pipes, uh, the gooseneck bracket for the boom, uh, anti-fouled it. They had to, there was a bit of blistering on the keel, so they had to sand that back. Uh, there was actually a little bit of damage on the rudder. The rudder had been run aground, unfortunately, um, so it had a chip on the bottom, or like a small section of the bottom of the rudder. Cracked bulkhead. So, you know, they had to repair all those things, which were then all re-inspected by our uh, surveyor. And I'd say it was really beneficial in that regard, buying an ex-charter boat, because it was owned by the marina, so nothing was a problem for them. Everything we asked for, they said yes, because it was easy for them. They had their own guys to do it, and it was really inexpensive and not much bother for them. Now, who's so, the, look, do, then, do you yep. remember the name of your surveyor? Because it's always good to give referrals to uh, people that do a good job. Demir, what's yeah. his surname? Demir Buff. Yeah, Demir Buff. Or Buff. Demir Buff. B-A-F, wasn't it? Yeah, Buff, you're right. Yeah. B-A-F, okay. And I'll see if I can yeah. find yeah. a link to him on the yeah. internet. Demir, D-A-M-I-A, Buff. B-A-F, okay. Yeah. And his, D- his no, website, oh, sorry, his company is D-A-M-C-I-R. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. And he only services the top half of Croatia. So okay. anything from, I think it was Shibanek North, anything from Shibanek upwards. And his company, Franz, is uh, Marine Claims Service, or M-C-S. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. So yeah, look, we were we were really happy with him, um, and basically it gave us, you know, a really good platform. I think a really good foundation to start cruising. Um, since we bought the boat, we've spent a lot of money kitting it out and a lot of time kitting it out to facilitate full-time livable board. Uh, since then, we've also replaced the standing rigging. 
We've upgraded the water. Replaced uh, all the running rigging as well. Yeah. Now, now, now did, you do, did you do this in yeah. the yard before you launched it? Because that's a that's a big project. No, no. So we've been basically we did it in two stages. I'd say we are as we made our way through the med, we sort of ticked off projects in each country as we went. So <laughs> we are. Because you're 100% right. I think we could have spent a year in that yard just constantly oh, doing all yeah. this work. Right. Yeah. Oh, and we did actually try and get the standing rigging done in Croatia, but everyone said, yeah, we can do it in three months' time. Yeah, oh. so where, where, did you end up, where did you end up having the standing rigging done? Was it Malta by Al chance? Merimar. Al Merimar. Al Merimar in Spain, and it's the best thing we ever did. Really? I was so pleased with it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Best stumble we ever stumbled upon. In comparison, I think I went out for quite a few quotes uh, for our boat and everything was looking around six to 7,000 euros in sort of Greece, Malta, Italy. Um, but in our Marimar, I think it ended up costing four and a half thousand euros. Yeah, and from what we saved in marina fees as well, my goodness. Yeah, it was only eight euros a eight day. Eight euros a day for the marina for our 38-foot monohull. So if somebody pulled into Almir- if somebody pulled into Almiramar, it would be pretty easy to find the rigger in that area, or is it was it one guy yeah. in particular you found? There's, there's two. There's two. There's two different riggers there, um, and they're both excellent. Both okay. excellent. Both had really good reviews. Yeah, our friends got it um, done with the other guy. Um, I forgot his name. Do you remember? remember. They're both English. So the guy we got it done with um, was Chris, and his company was called. You're really, you're really testing your memory now, Rob. <laughs> well, um, you've got they're, they're great memories. Yeah. There's two riggers in the town. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think you can't go wrong with either of them, to be honest. They're, um, they don't like each other as well, so they're very competitive with pricing. So if you go to one of them and say, oh, I'm going with the other guy, they will give you the best price ever. We wish we knew that before we engaged with Chris. <laughs> A lot of politics in that town. <laughs> All right. Well, I've been to Almiramar, but it's been a long time. So I, and, and, oh, you and, should go back. Yeah. Now, all right. So actually just today, I'm, I'm going to share this with you. Just this morning, I got this email from a listener, Stefan. He says, mm-hmm. I've started to listen to your podcast, but I've not yet found all the details I need. I am interested in buying what looks like a pretty good boat in Croatia. No VAT paid as far as I know. I'm Canadian and would like to keep it there as a cottage to go a couple months a year in a nutshell do you have a fact that covers these i know it's a lot to ask um going cost buying process etc any anywhere you can point me would be great well i don't do facts i don't do facts and uh he's welcome to listen to the podcast and this is probably a pretty good podcast for him to listen to so but yeah I, i hope it helps you stefan yeah yeah, it should be good. But now, when you're talking about uh, go, my, I sort of figured for my 28 foot Bristol Channel cutter, which is 37 feet long overall, that my carrying costs every year, not in, you know, is is about seven thousand seven thousand five hundred dollars a year, which includes twenty five hundred dollars in insurance, uh, three thousand dollars in marina fees, and yeah, you know, and the rest for upgrades and maintenance and every now and then you're going to throw another ten thousand dollars on there for other stuff like new sails or new standing rigging and all the other stuff 
So I think a lot of people have this illusion that you can go, that it's cheap. Well, once you start adding marina fees to this, it's not, it's not that cheap. Oh, it's not cheap at all. We avoid them at all costs, honestly. We've actually set our boat up um, in a way that we can spend life on the hook for a long time. Right, yeah. Yeah. But, I'd say, um, but in Croatia, there's a lot of places that won't let you sit on the hook. They want to come charge you for it. So, Exactly. I think uh, we, we were quite happy to get out of the Mediterranean in that aspect. Um, we found the Caribbean much better for just living at anchor. I think we would have been in the marina three times over the last four months. Yeah. Whereas we found the Mediterranean a little harder. Um, until we got to Spain. Yeah, until we got to Spain. I mean, cheaper. But, like, the marina fees, the spot on France, are expensive. Um, obviously, if you can get a permanent spot to keep your boat all year round, it gets cheaper. But I'd, be, I'd say you're pretty bang on there with four to $5,000 yeah. to have your boat there in a marina. Um, and we're spending, you know... Anywhere from what forty euros to one hundred and fifty euros per night, or three hundred if you're in Ibiza. Yeah, Ibiza. Oh, really? Ibiza was a joke. Yeah, (laughs) there was one day there was um, a three meter swell pumping through um, the island, and Jackson's parents were arriving, and uh, the wind was blowing about thirty knots through the island as well. So we were desperately trying to find a marina, and every option was two hundred euros plus. So we were really stuck. Okay, one good reason to avoid the island entirely then. But but Palma oh, Mallorca is lovely, I know, but Palma Mallorca is not much cheaper, is it? No. Oh, we oh, we, no. we can't comment on that. We wouldn't know. Okay. I just know from people that went there that oh, it was really? pretty expensive as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, so we've covered pretty much the uh, the preparation of the boat, getting the boat ready. When did you finally start your travels down the Croatian coast? Uh, oh, we we were in, we had a rude awakening, didn't we, for our first crossing? Yeah, so we actually, so sorry, just going back, we went over in April for two weeks, then we came back to Australia for eight weeks, and we arrived back in Croatia basically like the first of July. Fourth of July. Fourth yeah. of July. Okay. Um, we had three weeks in the marina there while we're still doing some work done and waiting for the paperwork to be finished. And then we headed out of the marina at the end of July. And we started making our way down the Croatian coastline for, I think we spent four weeks. No, we did it. We did that in two and a half weeks. We did it really quickly. Cool. Okay. Mm. Let's back up just a little bit. What sort of paperwork did you have to go through? Did you re-register the boat? Oh, yeah. That's why I asked. You said, oh, God, I know. All right. It's pretty funny. So, yeah, so we, so again, maybe a good one for Stefan. Uh, you need to re-register your boat as a non-EU boat to avoid the VAT. Um, so we re-registered the boat in, as an Australian boat, uh, which that process takes quite a long time when you're dealing with originals back and forth. And... When we finally got to Croatia, there was one final form that we had to send, um, an original back to Oz, and the Croatian Postal Service kept sending our letter to Austria 
instead of Australia. And they don't speak a word of English in there as well. So it was really in the post office. It was really hard to sort out. So our our final form just kept going back and forth between Croatia and Austria for about one and a half weeks. Um, and then, yeah, we finally got that to Australia and got it sorted. Uh, we actually sailed for the first two months without our original registration papers until our friend brought them over and met us in Greece. Um, simply because we just ran out of time and it was going to take so long to get them posted over. But, yeah, there's always a lot to do. Um, and I think that's where a broker really comes in handy because he helped us with all the VAT and registration side, like the Croatian side of it. Um, and it basically came down, in the end, we had to sail 12 miles offshore from Croatia, which meant the boat was leaving Croatian waters and then re-enter um, under our Australian registration and then that made meant we were that exempt and could start cruising Europe. Now, now, which broker did you end up going with? Stefan, you said? No, no. We went with Sasha. Sasha, but, um, okay. I meant for your, yeah, for your listener, Stefan, who is thinking about buying a boat in Croatia. Oh, okay, um, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm looking at Pula, and uh, there's one big marina there, which is pretty close to a, uh, it looks like a Roman ruin or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We got to we got to know Pula quite well after spending six weeks there in the end. Now is that an ACI marina then? It is. Yep. No, no. Oh, it wasn't. Marina Baruta. I know which one you're talking about, France. There's an ACI one in the city, and then we were a little bit um, out of the city in a place called Marina Baruta. Ah, okay, okay. It's so beautiful. So there's one right in the city by this big amphitheater, it looks like. Not a, yeah. And that's not the one you're talking about then? No. Okay. So Veruda is a huge marina. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, there it is, around the corner. Yeah. Oh, just yeah. north? Just north? Okay, I'm looking at I'm pretty sure it was north. We're just looking on the map now. I think it's south. If it's the one that goes around oh, uh, okay. by Conalic. Not far at all. Okay, yeah. Yeah, sort of on the outs- outskirts of the city then. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. All right. All right, so you uh, so you were able to get through all the paperwork, and I've heard that Turkey's even worse, because I had interviewed somebody last right. year when they talked about the, the nightmare of buying the boat in Turkey and how it basically delayed them for literally over a month just to get yeah. the paperwork. So. That would suck. Yeah. I mean, that was, again, that was a bit of advice that we got from Rod, uh, being the boat broker, because he was the one that suggested that we go over, see the boat, and then come back. And, I mean, because it, it really did take us two and a half months Yeah. from paying the deposit to finally getting the boat done and dusted. And, you are, you're just completely marina-bound. You can't, you can't leave. You can't be travelling on the boat. Um so that was why we came back to Oz and kept working. And we're really glad that we did make the time to go out and see it first because we did have a long list of boats and the one on paper that came out on, on top, um, when we went to go and see it, it was really, it was awful. It was covered in mould. It wasn't well looked after. Um, but we could not have been able to tell that without seeing it in person. 
Okay, all right. Well, I, this is really good information. I hate sharing this with so many people because they may be over there grabbing all the bargains before I get there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I guess every year there's a new crop of boats that come off charter and go into the private market. Now, oh, absolutely. Yeah, now you are going to take this boat and take it back to Australia, yeah. perhaps sell it there, perhaps uh, uh, sail it there. What yeah. about? Look, that's the plan. Yeah. Now, what right. about um, the European is two twenty volts, fifty cycles per second. Is that the same in Australia? We're two forty in Australia. So, can you take? Will you be able to uh, just change some plugs, or is it not? Are you going to have to rewire the boat once it gets to Australia? I believe we can just change the plugs. Okay. Okay. I believe, um, and we haven't had a problem so far in the Caribbean. Um, because I know that a lot of the places in the Caribbean are set up for U.S. boats. Okay. Um, so we've been able to just change plugs and whatnot as we've gone. I know when I first went from the United States uh, and I landed in Sevilla, my first project was to go out and find a huge transformer to transfer from 220 down to uh, one, right. 110. And so I, for years and years and years, I carried around this huge transformer. And whenever I plugged in, I just oh plugged it into the transformer and then had a jury rig into, into my boat until I, finally, sure. until I finally got a new uh, battery charger, which was dual. So it would go either 220 uh, yeah. or 110. Yeah, right. yeah, which is the best way to go. But anyway, so let's continue on. So you boogied on down the coast then. Tell us the highlights of your Croatian adventure. Oh yeah, we 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 um, made some good ground in in a lot of time. Um, sorry, in a short amount of time. Our favourite place was um, that submarine cave, wasn't it? Um, the island of Vis was our favourite. Yeah, Vis was beautiful. I mean, but even going back, so remember the, the national park? Oh, it was actually a um, national tell park. Tell it seats us. Yeah, the one you put us onto, France. Uh, we loved it there. Yeah quite a few days exploring that. So tell it Tsitsa, it's got um, a lake, uh, a sulfur lake, which is really spectacular. Oh, yeah, Mijet, Mijet. Is that the one we're talking that's about? That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's okay. the one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then once we sort of made our way down to Split, I mean, it was all the islands, right? It was yeah. like Havar and this and Portula. Um, yeah. Those, it, it's, it's hard to explain when you cruising into these amazing cities on your own boat, isn't it? Yeah. uh, We felt really lucky to be sailing into Havar. We were given the advice to get in there really early so we can get a mooring. And we got there and we felt like the cats got the cream and got the last mooring. And then um, about 10 other boats came and everyone doubled onto moorings and it was bedlam. We had two different boats join onto our mooring um, and all the boats were clunking together. It was really stressful. <laughs> but it's so worth it. It's such a cool place. I think about. my favourite anchorage was um, Longa Beach. Oh, Stinova. Stinova, yeah. That was breathtaking. I think that was... Um, okay, where's that, 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 where's that at, Stinova? This, the island of Vis. Oh, okay. And that's one of the places I have never been. So I've never been to this. Oh, okay. oh you must. You must. Well, so when you're in this, there's a place called Stinova. And it's like this deep cut. And at the end of the cut, like this, it's, it would only be 
maybe 80 foot wide, I'd say. No, probably maybe like 100 foot wide. Yeah. Um, and as you go through, it sort of opens up a little more. And then at the end, there's a beach. And it's voted like one of the best beaches in Europe or something. Yeah. But when you're anchoring there, I mean, it is super deep. I think it was 22 meters. Yeah, we went stern too. Which is where we learned that our windlass has a capacity of 20 meters <laughs> because we couldn't get the anchor up. No. Um, and we went stern two for the first time. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, there was only enough room in there for sort of three boats or four boats. But yeah, you could drop your anchor in 22 meters and reverse. Literally, we would have been 10 feet off the cliff. Stern too, and once all the tourist boats left at about four o'clock, we just had the whole place to ourselves, and it was just amazing. Um, But we also really enjoyed just cruising around and like seeing all the old submarines and the old like sorry submarine caves and forts and all the stuff from the war, which has just sort of been left behind. Yeah, we anchored next to a submarine cave on on the same (laughs) island, the island of Vis, and that was the coolest anchorage ever. Um, there was a, a little fort as well that you could walk through the tunnels next to the submarine cave. So where is this? I'm zoomed in on this, and I, I'm, at, I'm looking at the main town of this, where the ferry comes yeah. and goes. Is it, it was right next to that main town. That's where the submarine cave was. Uh-huh. And then Stinnevis on the south coast. On the south coast, okay. Right. Yeah, in the middle of the south coast. All right, okay. I, yeah, there's a bunch of inlets poked, that are poked in there, so... Yeah. yeah. If you zoom into one of them, you can actually see a few little boats yeah, that anchored the in there one. on the map. Okay. All right. Good. So that'll be a place and to put on also... for. Sorry, carry no, on. No, go ahead. You said, and there's also. Well, there's there's actually a blue lagoon next to you know, it's next to um this, which is really famous, and um, uh, it, it's people um put that on their itinerary, but we would probably suggest not. Jackson went there sailing once. And um, it's super busy. You're not actually allowed to go there yourself. You have to get a tour. And we found a different Blue Lagoon in Montenegro, which um, we're happy to share with you, which was apparently that one blew that one out of the water, didn't it, Jackson? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, we're yeah. in Montenegro because we're going back there this summer. Um, so, um, Hertegnovi. Yeah, mm-hmm. way down Outside south then. Okay. Yeah. Way down yeah. south then. All right. Don't and know it's the I... only blue lagoon in Montenegro, so you can just Google it and you'll find it. All right. Well, I've been to Herzegnovi, but I didn't know there was a blue lagoon there. That was where I hopped off to head down to Albania. Now, oh well, there you go. Yeah. Did you go to Albania, or did you uh, head on over to Italy from there? No. So uh, once we got to the end of our. Croatian journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we went down past Montenegro, and then we had a passage that went from Montenegro down to Corfu. So we skipped Albania, and it was actually our first multi-day passage yeah. and our first overnight passage together. And it was rough. <laughs> um, and we definitely got caught out with just the unpredictable weather on that part of the coastline because all our weather information was saying that we were going to have a great trip and the first night um, we were stuck between three electrical storms as we were sort of making our way down that Albanian coast 
which apparently isn't uncommon for that part of the world. Yeah, just these little micro-electrical storms that sort of sweep through. Uh, and that was definitely a very sobering experience yeah, for us. Yeah, it was. It was scary. We had to make an emergency stop. And there's a lot of, um, well, they say there's a lot of unexploded mines off the coast of Albania. And, and it's um, forbidden to anchor in a lot of places. We actually had to go and anchor in one of those places. We had no choice. <laughs> so that was scary. I think you would agree, Franz. We sort of had, we came around one of the points and we could see this squall, this storm coming. And we had 40 to 45 knots on the nose. Oh, um, yeah. And at that point, we were like, Make all right, <laughs> let's, uh, let's duck into this bay and anchor in this somewhat sheltered bay. And on the maps, it just kept saying, Warning, be careful, don't anchor here, possible submerged mines. A former minefield from World War Two. But we didn't really have a lot of options no. except to drop the anchor and hope for the best and wait it out. And we had to wait like seven hours while it just blew 40 knots um, screaming through. Well, and there's not that many places to duck into along the coast there. Where, where was this? We got really lucky. Um, we're just looking at the map. It must have been... Would you say it's Vlore? Okay, yeah, that, yeah, there, there's yeah, a. Yeah, I think it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we reckon it was Vlore. All right. Which makes sense because then it was. It was actually that one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Vlore, you're right. Because then it was, we had a, about another 12 hours down at Corfu. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's about right. And there's a marina there, but you didn't go to the marina, you just went to, a, to an anchorage then. Well, to be honest with you, Franz, we didn't want to go through the whole process of checking into Albania right. um, and dealing with the agents and all of that. Um, we thought, we, you know, we thought it was just going to be a squall for an hour or two, so we just anchored for a little bit and were hoping that it would pass, which took a lot longer than we expected, and then we sort of just kept going. Okay, okay. Now I, now I see on there's a, that peninsula and there's a couple little anchorages around the corner. Did you actually come into the Bay of Lori then? No, we actually, I'm just looking at it here. We actually stopped right on the end of that peninsula. You can see there's right. like a little island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then directly opposite that island, there's a little cove there. And that was where we actually stopped. Okay. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. A nice little cove there. Okay. Yeah. And then from there, uh, hop on down to Corfu then, huh? Yeah, so we made our way down to Corfu, and that was when we started our first lot of boat work. Yeah, the marine shops there were really good, and they had girlfriend chairs in every shop as well, so I quite liked that. <laughs> <laughs> where, where in Corfu did you go? Did you go to, uh, uh, let's see, what's the name of the big marina there? Govia? Govia, yeah, we right. did, yeah. All right. We love Corfu. So we, but when we first arrived, we actually anchored off the old town. We yeah. anchored off the old town. Mm-hmm. I forget the name. Yeah, by the oh, castle. Oh, here we go. Yeah, just right yeah. by the exactly. castle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really famously bad holding. Um, we drive down for a couple of times. Had a few goes at setting it, but um, really, really great place to stay. Really central. Yeah. And this was where uh, we had to replace all the batteries on the boat. Uh, we upgraded our water, um, and we just... What else did we do? We did something else. Water filter. Oh, yeah, we, we installed, like, a water purifier. Oh, okay. Um, 
because oh, upgraded anchor chain as well. Oh yeah, and after because we kept getting stuck in a lot of deep anchorages in Croatia, um, the boat came with 45 meters of chain, mm-hmm. and so we put another 30 meters of chain on it because uh, yeah, we just found ourselves very limited to where we could anchor. So I would recommend that to anyone out there that you probably want at least 70 meters. Would you agree, Franz? Yeah, yeah. And I, there's been many times I've had all my anchor chain out. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I carry a lot of anchor chain on my boat. Mine's a 5-16th high test chain. What size do you use? Uh, You're probably a millimeter. 10 millimeter. Yeah, yeah, mine's 10 millimeters. Which would be about... No, oh, that's about three eighths of an inch, even bigger than three eighths. Then, yeah. is that right? Yeah, twenty-five yeah. millimeters to the inch. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty big. That's pretty damn heavy chain you've got. Unless I'm. It is actually. Yeah. And we actually learned that because after we upgraded the chain, we it must have been about a month later, and whenever we were bashing into like a sea head on and working our way upwind we started te- like there would always be water coming in on the bow <laughs> and we could never work out where it was coming from and like I don't know maybe once an hour the bilge pump would go off and you know we'd start there'd be a bit of water in the bilge the pump would go off and we'd pump it out <laughs> and you know it took me months to work out what it was and I think in the end it was the extra ch- extra chain in the locker which actually sort of created a crack in the bottom of the locker. So oh, okay. whenever you'd be going upwind and bouncing in the waves, the weight of the chain would open up this crack and let the water in. Uh, so, yeah, I ended up reinforcing that with a lot of resin and fiberglass, and we haven't had the problem since. So, again, to anyone out there who's upgrading their chain, just think about the locker and yeah, supporting and it, it. And it tends to make a, a boat... <laughs> hobby horse a lot more too the more chain you it put does in. yeah it does yeah all right so we've been going on for 45 minutes i'm going to stop and we are going to continue to talk in the second uh, portion of this episode so i'm going to stop the recording okay. right now and restart it here okay. life is short In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.